reading John chapter 2. I'll be reading uh, verses 12 through to 25. This is from the ESV Bible. John 2, 12 and following. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. With the sheep and the oxen, he poured out the coins and the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you were to visit Jerusalem today, you'd probably be surprised to find it more similar to the ancient city of Jerusalem than you might have first imagined. If you enter through the Damascus Gate, you'll wind your way through narrow cobblestone streets with, with, tall, with tall walls on either side. And apart from the, the vendors and the graffiti and the, the, the Muslims that are all over the place, it would really look very similar to what it would have looked like 2,000 years ago. Most of you are probably aware of what's been happening in Israel over the past week as uh, in response to just continual rocket attacks from the Gaza Strip, Israel has defended herself and has launched strikes into Gaza. And that whole region is now heating up because they're, because of the Arab Spring, so many of those countries in, uh, in northern Africa and the Middle East now have Islamist leaders. And so Israel seems to be again tottering on the brink. This has been true throughout her history. Again and again and again, there's been occupiers of the country of Israel. We talked about this last week with first the Babylonians and then, well, first the Canaanites, there was their, it was Canaanite land, then the Babylonians, then the Persians and the Greeks, then the Romans. And now the, the Palestinians are also occupying the land of Israel. And for the first time in many years, Jerusalem itself has, has faced threats of, of rocket attacks as the, the technology improves on, on behalf of the terrorists and their, the range of their rockets is, is increasing. 
But as the world waits and wonders, what's going to happen next? The Christian need not fear because we serve a sovereign God. Because we worship the same God who entered through that eastern gate into the temple 2,000 years ago. And we know that the sovereign orchestrator of history is bringing all things towards his return. We don't know exactly when it's going to happen. We don't know exactly how it's going to happen. But we know that he will return. So on that Passover celebration 2,000 years ago, Jesus inaugurated events that are going to be repeated in the future and possibly even in the near future. This morning we're going to follow Jesus as he continues his public ministry. Remember from last week I explained that chapters 2 through 12 reveal the signs that Jesus is the Messiah. And the chapters 2 through 4 are a subsection with Jesus' ministry revealing that he is bringing in a new order. The Messiah is establishing a new covenant, not with the blood of bulls and sheep and goats, but with his own blood. Now, until now, Jesus has kept things pretty low-key. Remember, a few days prior, he just performed his first miracle by turning water into wine at the, the marriage of probably a poor couple in the, in the obscure town of Cana. By doing that, he was, he was living out a, a practical sign. He was, he was, it was a living parable. By turning the, the water from those, those jars that were used for Jewish purification into wine, he was talking about, he was proving that he is going to put away the old ritual external washing with the new wine of the new covenant and the kingdom of God. Now he chose to do that far away from Jerusalem. Probably a few days journey from Jerusalem, but now... Now, after traveling back to Capernaum for a few days with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, he comes back to Jerusalem. We read in chapter 2, verse 13, that the Passover of the Jews was at hand. So he traveled the, the some 90 miles from Capernaum to Jerusalem, and he was headed straight for the temple. Now, it's customary for Jewish males to go to the temple during the Passover celebration in order to, to remember, to commemorate what God had done for Israel by freeing them from their captivity in Egypt, where the Lord had commanded them to sacrifice a lamb and then put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their homes so that when the destroyer passed over, killing all of the firstborn in Egypt, the firstborn males of the houses of Israel would be spared. And on every Passover, they were commanded to sacrifice a lamb in remembrance of what the Lord had done for them. 
Now, as Jesus approached the temple, he would have seen it from a long way off, that the temple itself is, is striking. It's, it's perched there on the, it was perched on the, the northeastern side of the city of Jerusalem, and it, and it was so big, it, it encompassed roughly one-sixth of the city. Now, the original temple, the, the one that had built by Solomon, had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, in 587 BC, this is described in 2 Kings 25. But over 500 years later, Herod, the Roman puppet king, because he was unpopular with the Jewish leaders and because he had a, had a lust for, for building big things, decided to build the temple. And he, he had begun reconstruction of the temple in the year 19 BC. And he made the, the Temple Mount much bigger than it had actually been before. It now encompassed 1.5 million square feet. But the temple itself was according to the, the specifications that had been given by the Lord. It was 172 feet long and wide and high. It was built in white stone and gilt with gold. It was an imposing structure. Now, during this period, the temple itself would have been crowded. The area was packed with, with pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem, to the temple, to celebrate the Passover. But as Jesus came into the temple compound, he was no ordinary worshiper. Think about it for a moment. Jesus Christ, God the Son, was about to enter his temple. It had been built as a symbol of the presence of God amongst his people. Isaiah, in Isaiah 6.1, said he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And the presence of the Lord there in the temple even went back to the, the tent of meeting with Moses. In Exodus 33.9, when, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. But now the Lord is there with a physical body entering his temple. But almost every single person that was there did not realize who was standing in their midst. And they did not realize what Jesus was about to do. He was about to supersede temple worship, replacing it with worship of himself, the risen Lord. And there was, this morning we're going to see exactly how Jesus did that. Jesus came to cleanse the house. Jesus came to complete the house. And Jesus came to construct the house. So first of all, in verses 14 to 17, we see that Jesus came to cleanse the house. Now, as Jesus approached the eastern gate, it was obvious that things were woefully amiss. It should have been quiet. He should have seen people with their heads bowed in prayer, people speaking in hushed tones so as not to disturb others in their own worship. Now, this is the, even the general tone that you'll find today if you were to go to the Temple Mount and go to the, the western wall, which, which is one of the only parts of the, the Temple Mount that still stands. The temple itself being long gone, having been destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. 
just this one section, this western wall, is, is considered to be a, a holy site by Jews. And, and they come to this day by the thousands in order to pray at this wall. And Jane and I were talking about this last night. As, as you go there, it's, it's really sad because these people don't realize that you don't need to go to this particular place to worship God. Let alone the fact that they do not realize that unless they approach through the one who approached the temple that 2,000 years earlier, God will never hear their prayers. But there in the outer courts on that day, instead of the sound of quiet prayers, Jesus was greeted by the clamor of a marketplace with vendors selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices along with money changers. Don Carson explains that instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there is the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there is noisy commerce. Because pilgrims had traveled quite often from long distances in order to go to the temple, it was very difficult for them to bring livestock for the sacrifices. So there in the outer courts, it had become a marketplace where, where vendors sold oxen and, and sheep and goats and doves to be sacrificed. And they did this at a, at, a, at a tidy profit. And there was also money changers who were there converting um, foreign money into the accepted currency, also at a tidy profit. Now, Jesus, we know, had been there at least once before. We know that he'd been there at least at the time when he was a baby and his parents brought him to the temple and offered two, two doves as a, as a sacrifice of dedication. And who knows, but, but very likely, his parents had actually purchased those doves from the very sellers, those very merchants that were there in the temple on that day. Now, Jesus had also probably visited there repeatedly because it was required of Jewish males to go to the temple. He'd probably gone there many, many times throughout his life in his first 30 years. But this time was different. This time, filled with righteous anger, he fashioned a whip out of cords and drove the vendors and the animals and the money changers out of the temple. He was filled with righteous anger. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And as Turner says, it was surely the blazing anger of the selfless Christ rather than the weapon which he carried, which really cleared the temple courts of its noisy, motley throng. But this really isn't the image of Jesus that's in the popular mind, is it? It's not the image of Jesus that is even described in many churches. Most people want a long-haired, wimpy Jesus, a Jesus who loves everybody and never gets angry. Beloved, that is not the Jesus of the Bible. Leon Morris quotes Richard Morgan here. 
The Old Testament is present at every crucial moment in John's Gospel. And Morris goes on to explain, it is one of John's great themes that in Jesus, God is working his purposes out. Every critical moment sees the fulfillment of Scripture in which those purposes are said forth. So the Messiah does get angry, and so he should. The disciples knew this. They took it as a sign of who he really was. And their minds were brought to the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 69, which says in verse 9, Zeal for your house has consumed me. God does get angry, and so he should. Malachi 3, 1-3 says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and make them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings of righteousness to the Lord. The Lord inaugurated that on that Passover day 2,000 years ago. And he will fulfill it when he returns to claim his people. God is holy. God is utterly pure. He is utterly separate from everything that is common and unclean. Now, there isn't anything intrinsically wrong with with selling sheep and oxen. But the problem was that the sale didn't belong there. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire coming to purify his house. Jesus is coming back to purify his people. 1 Peter 4.17 says, It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So I need to ask you this morning, are you part of God's household? Does zeal for God's house consume you? Are you fired up for your purity and for the purity of God's church? Are you seeking to protect the glory of God and the purity of his church? Are there sins in your life that you need to confess and repent of? Are there things in your life that aren't exactly wrong but hold too high of a place in your life? I know I've been convicted even this morning of things in my life that need to go. So I want to ask you, what is getting in the way of your worship? We need to ask the Lord to reveal it to us and to help us to clear it out. And to realize that God gives us his word, he gives us his Holy Spirit in order to help us to do this, but he also gives us each other in order to help us to do this. 
He gives us each other as, as instruments of grace to help each other and to encourage each other and to stir each other up to love and good deeds. So if you really understand who Jesus is and the joy that comes from serving and worship him, you will gladly drop anything, anything that gets in, your, in the way of your worship. Next, Jesus came to complete the house. Jesus came to complete the house. We see this in verses 18 to 22. When Jesus did this, they were understandably perplexed. They wondered who this was. They wondered, maybe this really isn't just some religious reformer. So they answered him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Morgan explains that the rulers recognized that the startling challenge in which what he had done in cleansing the temple courts, as he stood lonely in lonely dignities, coins scattered, animals dispersed in every direction, and with the animals those who, of, who, of those who owned them gone out, they gathered about him and they answered him. They answered him. So the religious leaders were giving an answer to what Jesus had done. So in answer to his actions, they demanded, demanded an answer. So they asked, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Carson explains that as the legal authorities, these Jews had every right to question the credentials of someone who had taken such a bold action in the temple complex. But they weren't concerned with whether he was right in doing so. They were more concerned with whether he had the, the authority to do it. They believed that the Messiah would perform miracles. But they hadn't been privy to what had happened in Cana just a few days prior. And Carson goes on, that they requested a miraculous sign demonstrates that they harbored at least a suspicion that they were dealing with a heaven-sent prophet. But if so, they were asking the wrong sort of question. They were demanding a miracle. But they should have recognized, as the disciples did, that this was a sign, that the very casting out of these money changers and merchants was the sign that they should have been looking for. But Jesus didn't play their game. He answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now that the two false witnesses at Jesus' trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, accurately quoted this statement from Jesus in Matthew 26.61. And it's incredibly ironic that the mockers of Jesus while he was on the cross in Matthew 27.40 ridiculed Jesus by saying, You who would destroy the temple and build it in, rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Clearly, neither group had a clue who Jesus was or what he was doing. Neither did the, G the Jewish leaders. They said it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? Now, some suggest that this means that it was built 46 years ago, but it actually means that construction had been in progress for 46 years. The temple would be destroyed just a few years after its completion in AD 70. 
Jesus prophesied this in, 20, in Matthew 24, 2. You see all these, don't you? Truly I say to you, there not be left here one stone upon the other that will not be thrown down. Virtually nothing of the original temple structure remains on the Temple Mount today. In fact, apart from the grotesque Al-Aqsa Mosque and the, the gaudy Dome of the Rock, the Temple Mount has been raised of almost every single structure. But Jesus here wasn't talking about buildings. He was talking about the temple of his body. These buildings pointed to Jesus Christ. They pointed to his presence with his people, even though the vast majority of his people failed to recognize it. His body was what the temple was all about. Later on in his ministry, when the religious leaders again sought a sign from them, he said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Matthew 12, 39 and 40. This is a clear, a clear testimony of the fact that Jesus was going to die and be raised again. We read in, in the next verse, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Throughout the Old Testament, we see passages pointing to the death of the Messiah. Isaiah 53, 9 and 10, He was cut off from out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This is just one of, of countless verses that point to the death of Christ, that it was necessary that the Messiah should die. Even Caiaphas, the high priest, recognized that. But there's also many verses that testify to his resurrection. Psalm 16.10, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Or Psalm 103, verse 4, The Lord redeems your life from the pit. So they understood that the word that, that Jesus had spoken, they understood, understood after the resurrection, Jesus had directly and repeatedly told them that he was going to die and be raised again. And they either failed to understand it or rebuked him for it. But it was only after the resurrection did they really understand that he'd been talking about the temple of his body. Finally, Jesus came to construct the house, verses 23 to 25. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Many, this is extended beyond just the disciples. Many believed in his name. This passage introduces the, the John chapter 3 that we're going to look at next week, where, where Jesus has his discussion with Nicodemus. Jesus was having an impact. Many believed in his name. 
they believed, but from the context, we shouldn't conclude that they actually came to saving faith. Even though translators usually translate the word differently in verse 24, it's the same verb in 23 as in 24. What's translated, many believed in his name in 23, and is translated, Jesus did not entrust himself to them in verse 24, it's actually the same verb, the Greek verb, pisteo. Pisteo, which often means to believe. So they believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. God knows the heart, Acts 15, 8. These people believed because they saw outward things. But as I said last week, signs do not produce faith. They confirm faith in those in whom the Holy Spirit is at work. But the signs themselves do not create faith. There's a lecture that we're going to watch in a few weeks on Wednesday nights between Greg Bonson and, and an atheist, George Smith. And, and the atheist says that if, he, if, this, if the podium levitates and floats across the room, he will believe in God. And Bonson says, no, you won't. Because your presupposition is that the supernatural does not exist. So he says, if the podium levitates and floats across the room, you are going to have to find some naturalistic, rationalistic explanation for that that excludes the miraculous. And the same was true here. The same was true here. There is no greater miracle than somebody rising from the dead. And Jesus did that. He rose again on the third day. Over 500 people saw him. Yet even still, the Roman authorities and the religious leaders did not worship him. The majority of the crowds rejected him. It wasn't until Pentecost when Peter would preach and many of these people would come to repentance. But the signs were not enough. In John 6, 26, Jesus described the kind of faith they had. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And so they walked away when Jesus didn't live, live up to their expectations. When Jesus told them they must eat his flesh and drink his blood, and that no one would come to him unless it was granted by the Father, many turned back and walked no longer with him. John 6, 66. We're told in the parable of the soils that, that there are going to be many who will appear to believe Jesus. Many, many young plants are going to shoot up, but because they have no root in themselves, 
because their roots don't go down deep into the rock of Christ Jesus when the sun comes up and they are, they are scorched because of trouble or persecution that arises due to the word, they will burn away. They will show themselves to be false converts. They will show themselves that they are not part of the true church that Jesus is building. Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell. The very gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus is calling for himself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. He wants true conversion, not those who are self-seeking, looking for signs or outward miracles. As we'll see in John chapter 4, that true worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. In the context of the tribulation of the last days, Jesus taught in Matthew 24, 13, that the one who endures to the end will be saved. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. He began the work. He is going to finish the work. And so our hope is not in, in our ability to, to persevere, but in God's ability to preserve because he has given us his Holy Spirit as the down payment, as the earnest of our salvation because he is the author and perfecter of our faith. So is your hope today in Jesus Christ. Has he begun a work in your heart? Will he bring that work to completion? The evidence of that is a life that looks more and more like Jesus. As you walk with Jesus, you will be transformed into the image of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. So I pray that each one of us, as we are being built up into the house of God, as we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that we would reflect Christ in our zeal for his house and our zeal for him. Let's pray.